Hello, I'm Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and you're listening to The Water Cooler. Today is John Anderson, who was Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and Deputy Leader of the National Party from 1999 to 2005. Uh, He served in the Howard Government as a Minister for Primary Industries and Energy and Minister for Transport and Regional Development. John, welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast. It's great to have you. Terrific to be with you. Could you tell me, sort of, in today's language, what made you first identify or self-identify as a national? as opposed to, say, a Liberal? Well, I lived in a rural area where my family had lived all his life and everyone belonged to the National Party, particularly after the Whitlam years. A great surge in National Party membership took place as a result of the turbulence that we saw uh, with Whitlam. Uh, And they were tough times in the bush anyway, and he made them a lot worse. Uh, And uh, the other aspect of it was that I came to admire... I was not a great admirer of the Fraser government, to be honest. As a young person, I thought, they had a mandate to really shake the place out and it didn't happen. And I remember indeed uh, my last year at school passing out parade uh, in a very, very big cadet corps on one of the busiest roads in Sydney, remembering that three cars went past because there was yet another petrol strike. And then I reflected that uh, the last letter from my father had taken 12 days instead of a day and a half to get to me because the Redfern Mail Exchange was on strike. So I had a, a sympathy for conservative politics, I suppose, but... In particular, it was Doug Anthony courageously arguing that we had to move to uh, import parity pricing for petroleum because we were running out of our own crude because no one was doing any exploring. And I remember it was very unpopular farmers, but I remember thinking intellectually he's right, politically he's being courageous, and I'm attracted to his party because of him. Many people who listen to this podcast might be unfamiliar with that period it was very different to now wasn't it I mean we had we'd been through a very recent recession and and people knew what it was like to see jobs disappearing and prices going up very different environment to the one we're in now very different environment you had Lee Kuan Yew warning that Australia was in danger of becoming the poor white trash of Asia my father unbelievably to me in my last year at school ordered a Monero Coupe, which we still had it in the family, V8 four on the floor, and I can't, I can remember being green with envy, but at least delighted we were going to have this magnificent machine in the family. Uh, between the time he ordered it and the time it was finally delivered, many, many months late, there'd been several strikes in the factory, uh, and as I recall it, five price increases, because when you ordered the car, they wouldn't give you a firm price. The thing was, I mean, it was a mess. Great car, though. I wish I still had it. Yeah. Terrible at cornering. (laughs) Funny you should know that because that was the... I remember now there was a magazine article at the time titled Tragedy of a Stylist Dream. Magnificent looking car, not a bad drive chain, uh, but uh, the American engineering in it uh, designed them supposedly for safety reason, the dog of an understeer, so I wouldn't go around a corner for peanuts. Because the whole car industry, we'll come along and talk about that in a minute in its contemporary form, was very different too, wasn't it? We had tariffs in place, the, yeah. the domestic industry was protected, yeah. and a lot of people thought that was something that could never change because we'd lose jobs, but of course we went through that transition 
uh, with no ill effect. In fact, lots of benefits, I think. We've got better cars out of it. Well, that was, you know, one of the things that was often said to me, and sometimes it was pretty pointed, ah, uh, you know, what about blackjack? Why don't you be more like blackjack? Well, I couldn't. I didn't believe in things like high tariff walls. You know, the, the best thinking in rural Australia in those days had moved to a very different place, and the National Farmers Federation, and indeed the New South Wales Farmers Association, which was in those days very, very well-led and had a lot of money. They were doing a lot of research. It was evident that the nation needed to wake up, shake itself out, and that the best thing you could do for farmers was to run a properly managed economy. Uh, and, and that was very, very much the view that I came to. And in terms of history, yeah, it's already a long time ago. It only seems the other day to me. But during those early 90s when we lost the unlosable election and uh, built towards the 1996 election, uh, it is true to say that the coalition's leadership uh, right across the board was absolutely committed to getting the fundamentals right, and that was the best thing to do for all businesses, including farmers. We often look back on that period. I suppose you you came into politics during that period of as a period of great reform. You know, the Hawke, Keating era, Howard era when real long-term changes were made that have benefited the economy. I mean, Paul Kelly's always writing about this, right? The Great Age of Reform. But uh, it's often forgotten the amount of intellectual preparation that went into that by people like the Farmers' Federation uh, and other groups who who did the hard work, not just in this country, of course, but in in the States and in, in, in Britain. I think that's a really important point. You know... Um, you hear a lot of talk now, and sadly I hear it too much uh, uh, in, in country political parties about you know, sort of service delivery outcomes and uh, money for this project, money for that project, but actually the shape of our society in the end, just as our society really is a product of the, of the clash and interaction of great ideas, its progress is no different. And I think people would be astonished if they could somehow, if we could bring back to life, the vigour of the internal discussions in the National Party party room at the time that I went in there. Where will we go? What do we believe in? It was old guard versus new guard, but it wasn't an age thing. There were a couple of the older members who were very, very astute and great champions of a clearer, crisper, better thought out, if you like, more hard-nosed. The word used then was echo rat. I remember a journalist from the bush saying to me, you know... um, are you really an echo rat, an economic rationalist? And I said, well, would you like me to stand here and say I'm economically irrational? The clash of ideas matters. Really detailed debate about complex issues matters. And then you've got to be able to explain what you're trying to do in language that the punters can understand and appreciate because they're not dumb. They don't have time to focus on the minutiae the way people in politics should but they should then be treated with respect and have the issues set out properly. So, I mean, this comes back, I think, to the work that, uh, that we do, the job I'm employed to do at the Menzies Research Centre and that you oversee at the Page Research Centre as the chair. Uh, two think tanks, one associated with the National Party, one with the Liberal Party. It is our job, isn't it, to do this intellectual grunt work, if you like. But, but I mean, we feel very much that... Um, you know, it's us against the world. There isn't that same backing that you once had. I mean, we we go to the farmers and they don't want to get involved terribly much in the debate now. We go to 
the corporates and, and they, they you know pat you on the head and say you're doing a good job, but they don't want to get too deeply involved. Nobody wants to touch this space anymore. Um, and maybe that's why uh, government is perhaps not nearly as, doesn't seem as effective as it once was, because they're not getting that back up. Well, I have a view that the fracturing of governments and politics right across the Western world uh, is actually the product of, rather than the cause of, fractured societies. And I would gently urge business leaders particularly who have an enormous responsibility to take positions and argue the case to be a little less tied up with virtue signalling on social issues of the day. Now, we know why they do it. Let's be really blunt about this. They know that because they know business is in fairly bad standing in the community today. So they want to say things that they think will be well-received without thinking that through either because a lot of the time it's well-received by the press. The press essentially and the media essentially belong to a group whose mindset lines up with the one-third of Australians who self-identify as left, but two-thirds do not. And nowhere was that more evident, to my way of thinking, than during the banking inquiry, where you'd seen bankers, like so many other people in the business world, doing a lot of virtue signalling about how, you know, we had to be on board with uh, whether it was climate change or marriage or gender issues. But actually, the virtue that we really wanted from them was that you could trust them with our dollars. That's the virtue that really matters. So for a lot of this, we need some intellectual leadership, but it won't come, I don't think, until people have, I'm going to be very old-fashioned here, say they've got some sort of moral framework and a recognition of the real responsibilities of leadership, the real responsibility. The real responsibilities of leadership in the banking sector is to do your job professionally in a way that people trust, in the way that the AMP did. Geoffrey Blaney said it was the most trusted institution in Australia after the churches, and they've got their story to tell. Uh, in, in the early decades of its life, it was an enormous force for good, socially and economically, in an age when there was virtually no banking regulation. Now, go figure. We'll bind it up in regulation now. Will that work? I doubt it. People play to the limits of the regulation. We need to again establish that people need must behave responsibly without coercion if we're to preserve our freedoms. This absence of a moral dimension in politics is something we've been reflecting on, and I think we're going to come back to this in the Menzies Research Centre in, in the next year or so, because uh, it seems to be vital. Um, intellectually, if you go back to the classical liberal tradition, English-British liberalism, Scottish liberalism, that, that we where, where the liberal idea in Australia really began, it, it differs from the European Enlightenment, differs from the European tradition in that it has a strong moral component. It's about, sure, it's about a message that brings prosperity and growth uh, through all the ideas people like Adam Smith put forward, but it's got a very strong moral dimension too that led in the 19th century to the abolition of slavery, uh, the abolition of child labour, all these terrific reforms, important reforms, education, compulsory education. But I wonder today whether we, we, we're not talking, maybe we've even forgotten that it does have a moral dimension. I think that's absolutely right, uh, and I wonder sometimes whether that's an accident. It's not taught properly. You know, the old Marxist uh, uh, sort of line that deprive the people of their history and they're easily persuaded. 
and you only have to deprive them, you know, people of their history for a generation or so, and you've snapped something, you turn yourself into a cut flower society where the flowers are no longer, if you like, attached to the roots that grew them and nourished them. And I think that's very dangerous. And it's particularly dangerous for the West at a time when we're confused about these things, we're uncertain, we don't know what we stand on, and we're confronted by some pretty powerful enemies who I have no doubt about what they stand for. And conviction will beat confusion and lack of conviction every day. We'll come back to that in a moment, I think, John. But first of all, let's talk a bit about you. You have a strong moral framework. I detect that. We've been we're working together and talking together for a while now. The very strong moral component to you. Where does that come from? Childhood? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, look, we all, everyone has an innate sense of right and wrong. Uh, you know, if you doubt that, then join the mafia and see what happens if you steal the boss's silver. You'll soon discover there's a strong sense of right and wrong. It becomes a question of what informs your conscience. Uh, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I became a believer at school. I became, and then at university, I was actually studying history, the history of our culture. I came to the conclusion I really, I really did, and I wasn't comfortable with it. It wasn't really where I wanted to go. But I really came to the conclusion that I had no choice. I had to accept I was at a fork in the road. If you look at our own culture, essentially the good things, the good worldviews, the sort of views that gave rise to the American Revolution and the freedoms that it ensured, in contrast, I might add, to the French Revolution, which was profoundly anti-religious and anti-authoritarian and resulted in the terror, and then you look again at the evolution of those things that you actually just touched on in Great Britain that were driven firstly out of the Wesleyan Revolution and then as it sort of moved up the social scales, you had the abolition of slavery, the greatest human rights movement of all times. You had the commitment to the poor, to the reform of the parliaments, to the complete overhauling of the way the British behaved in India. And I thought, well, that's good stuff. What motivated that? It was Christian faith. What do we then do with it? And you look at the people, this determination to get away from it. Blaise Pascal said, uh, men hate religion, and he meant Christianity, for fear it might be true. So you see these incredible attempts to reject it all. And the two great isms, of course, the right-wing one and the left-wing one, communism and fascism. I, I looked at that titanic struggle and thought, I actually think I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to line up with the Christians, and intellectually I couldn't do anything else. And... That now is not a popular view, but my challenge to the modern progressives, the uh, postmodernists, I suppose, would be, uh, is the society you're building for us really what you want? The levels of intolerance, of hatred, the way we talk to one another, the way we decry our own cultural roots but offer nothing better, the way we refuse to learn from history, and some of the economic inequalities that are now really threatening our young people and they have their basis in many ways in our own narcissism, my plea would be that people who want to reject my worldview might be modest enough to ask themselves the hard questions about where they're really taking us. The status of religion uh, has changed enormously, I think, in your lifetime and mine. If you go back to the 1966 census, you know, the question they always ask people, you know, what is your religion or do you have no religion the people in 1966 who said no religion would have been three four five percent i mean it was tiny now it's more than 30 percent 
and there are pockets in Australia, as you know, where it can be more than in the upper 40s or 50s, often interestingly where the Greens do rather yes. well at elections. Um, why, first of all, let's talk about why, try and put some framework about why that occurred, why this great sort of apparent turning away from religion. Well, to put a global framework on it, first of all, of course, it's the secularists who are dying out. Uh, this is not going to be an age of secularism. Globally, it's an age of enormous ferment over beliefs and ideas. And it's the secularists who are in the minority and shrinking. That's, that's a simple global reality. And we need to remember that as we talk about engaging in Asia, where there's a multiplicity of religious views, except for the modern aggressive secularism version of religious view, worldviews that we see in the West. The second thing I'd say is that I don't know that the, the great events of the 20th century were very helpful because, like William Wilberforce, I draw a real distinction, a very sharp one, between what he called real Christianity and what's perceived to be Christianity. So you had in the First World War both sides praying to the same God, and to some extent it didn't really happen in the Second World War, but I think that was damaging. And by the time we got to the 60s, Christianity was being decried on many fronts, the other great isms or mega narratives had been seen to be pretty dreadful. You know, fascism, communism, humanism, optimistic humanism had been discredited by the First World War, pessimistic humanism, it's not very attractive. So people started to live for themselves. Uh, and we've become incredibly narcissistic. And maybe that narcissism has a lot to do with the way in which we've now damaged ourselves economically, because we have. I think there's real trouble coming. We've run up irresponsible levels of personal debt and, we've, and then we've demanded of our politicians. Australia's been quite good on this by international standards. We've been relatively responsible. But when you look at the numbers out of Europe and America, you know, I've run out of the opportunity. You know, I can't run up any more personal debt, so I want the government to provide for me. And the debts that that's built up, weak need politicians giving way when they know they shouldn't in bidding wars, has, I mean, you know, Britain... Britain's a country I admire and has contributed so much to the world. But their unfunded pension liabilities going forward, for which they've not made provision, it's just gross irresponsibility. It's, it's grand larceny and theft against the next generation, intergenerational theft on a grand order. And we've managed to avoid the worst of that. But I do think the other thing we need to be really careful of, I know an analyst who did a lot of work uh, a, little, a few years ago, who says, actually, those people who tick no religion are often just saying they don't belong to a formal religion. They're just as likely to pray as somebody who does go to church. The other thing about it, of course, is that you've had this relentless attack on faith. Relentless. Where's that coming from? Why do people suddenly think that religion is a bad thing? I mean, I understand why not everybody wants to subscribe to it or, you know, why... They might look around and say, you know, there are some bad people who get associated with religion and do bad things. We know all about those. But why religion itself? I mean, it's... Well, if you study history, you cannot get away. You can't get away. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, Neil Ferguson makes this point. Now, he's not a Christian. Uh, he's an atheist. But he will say Christianity lies behind the success of the West. Hmm. Now, that, of course, is reason enough for a lot of people to now to attack Christianity because they think the West's terrible. I mean, I don't, find, I don't understand this. The West is the West's own worst enemy now. But as Jordan Peterson challenges young people, 
Really? Is it so terrible? Where else would you rather? Who's freer than us? Who enjoys more opportunity than the occupants of the West? Why do so many other people want to come here? Why do they envy what we have at a time when we apparently believe it's horrible and terrible and evil and oppressive and you know patronising? I don't get it. I, I wonder whether we've overreacted to this atheism and we now seem to think that it's not permissible to talk about faith or religious ideas or religious framing of civic ideas. Uh, but it seems to me that, that when you, people challenge that, as the Prime Minister did uh, last year when he became Prime Minister, his first major speech unapologet- unapologetically made a lot of his his religious faith. Not only that, we were there. It was an event staged by the Menzies Research Centre and I sat on the edge thinking this man looks and sounds like a Baptist preacher when he's, when he's in full flight. Uh, and there was a little attempt, I remember, by the ABC and others to sort of sneer at him and uh, you know, show that this proved what an unsuitable man he was. But uh, the overwhelming reaction from the vast majority of people was fair enough. I, I wonder if we were a little bit more open about matters of faith or uh, that, that we'd find that people are a lot more accepting and indeed appreciate it, see it as a virtue. Well, everyone keeps talking about the people who declare no faith in the census and forget the fact that still, even today, despite all the ruthless attacks, over 50% do identify with a Christian faith. You just made the point about the Prime Minister. Anyway, you know, Nobody can dispute that he's actually quite broadly liked and trusted by the Australian people by today's political standards. So it hasn't done him any great damage. Uh, and let's be really crude about this. On the trustworthy measure, he rates very considerably higher than his political opponent at the moment. Uh, and uh, that's a very big thing in an age when trust, the breakdown of trust, has become so critical. Now, it is true, of course, that we face this terrible problem that some truly evil things have been perpetrated uh, in, uh, you know, by, by people in religious organisations. We oughtn't to forget that the same applies to non-religious organisations. I, I, for one, am genuinely stunned to have this stuff uncovered. Uh, and to think of the number of children who have not been safe. But I sat beside a young man the other day. Well, young man. I'm, I'm into my 60s. He, he would have been 40-ish. And he actually got very angry as we talked over dinner because he said everybody's focusing on what happened in the institutions. But he said, uh, my, I was a product of a one-night stand by my mother who then took up with another man, not biologically related to me, who abused me uphill and downhill. Uh, and I became unbelievably frustrated and angry, and then my mother married somebody, and I was abused by the second, by my stepfather's son's school friend, and I ended up in a complete mess. And who's talking about my terrible experiences? So maybe one of the things we need in the face of all of this is a good dose of humility, and a lot less judgmentalism, and a great uh, willingness to listen and engage because it strikes me that one of the great problems we've got now is that far as we've become less religious, you know, far from becoming more rational and more committed to reason and to reasonableness, we've become less so. Maybe G.K. Chesterton was right. Stop believing in God and you'll over time start believing in anything. And I'm pretty staggered actually by what people will believe now. Thanks for listening to the Water Cooler podcast from the Menzies Research Centre. A number of listeners have been asking me recently, with listening as compelling as this, why do you need a pause button? Well, let me tell you.
It's so that you can log on to menziesrc.org, grab your credit card and make a fully tax-deductible donation to the Menzies Research Centre Public Fund. And why would you do that? So that we can make more podcasts. Thank you. So I'll just hold on a moment. Terrific. And now back to the Water Cooler Podcast. With me on the Water Cooler Podcast today, very fortunate to have former Deputy Prime Minister. Just before we move on to contemporary politics, just on the Nationals, it's interesting, isn't it, that 75 or years ago when Robert Menzies was bringing together the various, you know, the very disunited, fractious centre-right of politics under this this banner of the Liberal Party. Uh, he did um, talk to the Nationals, or, or the country party as it then was, about joining this this great new political force. But in the end, he seemed to think it was more appropriate to leave them outside and just you know, work together in coalition. That's very unusual in world terms, isn't it, to have a coalition working together for that long? Yeah. Yeah, it must be a record. I mean, I can't think of anywhere else in the world. Interestingly enough... You had a similar pattern in Scandinavia for a surprising length of time, but that's all dissolved now. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, John Howdoway supported the model strongly because he said there are some seats that the Nationals can appeal to that the Liberal Party never could, and obviously vice versa. I mean, like Robert Menzies, John Howard realised the importance of this. I I remember uh, we were at a function, you were there, of course, for the 20th anniversary of his coming to power and he made a big point of having you to speak at that you know that, that it was not just it wasn't just his success it was a success of obviously the Liberal Party and the National Party together. Yeah I think uh, you know I touched on it earlier that deep commitment to an agreed set of objectives was very important in 1996. A long period in opposition too had taught us the value of teamwork and I was on the Razor Gang, as it was known. And it was really difficult work. And we were under pressure, every one of us, to try and rule this in or rule that out. And none of us broke ranks. None of us. And I like to sometimes gently remind Peter Costello that he was a great treasurer, tremendous treasurer, and an enormous amount of time for him. But he had incredible loyalty from the team as well. Uh, And uh, it's the old story. I know it's trite, but it's absolutely true. A champion team will beat a team of champions every time. Of course, the big thing was the gun laws, wasn't it? That was where many thought that the relationship between the two coalition partners would be really stretched. But in the end, I think it probably strengthened it. Yeah, that which doesn't break you makes you. Uh, Because it was. It was pretty tricky. It was pretty hard, particularly in Queensland. Very hard. And, uh, you know, one of the big debates in that that didn't receive, out in the bush, that didn't receive a lot of coverage nationally, but... People in very isolated places worried about their own self-defence. That's a hard argument because in one sense you feel very sympathetic about them. But another, of course, a central tenet of a civilised society is that you do not take the law into your own hands. Real clash there between practical realities and and an idea that really matters. Yeah. I mean, Mr Howard often talks about when he speaks in... In the States now, as a retired Prime Minister, he'll talk about economic reform and get applauded, and he'll talk about how we stood with side-by-side side with Americans in very difficult wars for freedom, and he gets applauded. And his third achievement, well, we we uh, we tightened up the gun laws, and then the booze start. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. It, it's a very different dynamic, isn't it, between the two? Countries? It is very different. It's very different. And 
the greatest problem from my point of view with the Australian gun laws is that there are still people who, who feel a bit stigmatised out in the rural areas who, who are not, in, you know, they're good citizens and when they go to get a licence or renew it or whatever, you know, they're put through the rigmarole as though they can't be trusted, they've got to be checked out. And I feel a little bit of that of myself. But as I say to them, we need to realise that gun culture was emerging in the burbs, in the suburbs, that was very unattractive. And I knew that firsthand because I'd, I'd been a very keen shooter. I shot, shot for school, I shot for university. I continued in a bit of club activity uh, after university. I, I'd grown up with firearms. I had a lot of firearms myself, all properly registered and legal, I hasten to add to this day. Um, uh, and so I found myself, on one hand, emotively understanding where a lot of people were coming from, but also deeply committed to recognising that if you're not careful, you end up stigmatised for a different reason. You're defending something that people see as providing the tools for the deranged and the unstable and the evil to do terrible things. One of the things that still distresses me about it, though, is that very point. You stop and think about America. It's been a gun culture now for a couple of hundred years, and it was the pattern for kids to go to school with a, you know, with a firearm uh, uh, and, and leave it in the shed in many rural areas of America, and nothing nasty ever happened. You've got to ask yourself now why it is, what sort of family and community environments are people growing up in where some people become so angry and so deranged, so disturbed, that they'll do these sorts of things? And that's not being questioned because in the media in particular... The focus is always on, well, we ought to be vassals of the state, so it's the state's job to stop us doing these things, rather than doing as a classic liberal should do. What's breaking down in our civic society and in our family life, and which is surely the platform of a civic society, that's allowing people to behave like this? You can't end up... You, you won't control it in the end by state regulation. That's a very good point, John. I mean, we should say, because I mean, neither of us would want to argue for an American attitude to guns or return to the lax gun laws that we had before uh, Port Arthur. Not at all. Uh, but, But the inclination to blame the object rather than the people... Who actually use that object is is true of so many areas of politics policy now. I mean, uh, obesity, right? You know, it, it's it's now apparently the responsibility of the food companies or the soft drink companies who provide this stuff. It's not the responsibility of parents or you know individuals to limit their own sugar intake or to exercise. We we, we keep wanting to make this somebody else's problem and take away responsibility from the individual. Well, you see, I think, I think Paul Kelly said a really interesting thing uh, recently to the effect that all of the three mainstream Australian political constructs, if you like, conservatism, classic liberalism and democratic socialism or the Labor Party, they've all broken down. They've all broken down. So the framework for taking forward debates of this sort is lost. Why do I say that? Because a classic liberal should be going straight away to what is happening to the abandonment of the personal responsibility and of the commitment to freedom that says, I don't want and I'm not going to tolerate and I'm not going to allow the state to take over my freedoms 
and limit my responsibility to behave responsibly and sensibly and in a civic way. And we're, uh, we're drifting now into the situation where statism is becoming, in my view, quite a danger. And Jordan Peterson makes this point. Once the government gets into telling you what language you can use and what language you can't, for example, they're starting to tell you what you can think. Hello? What's happened to us? This isn't the Australia I grew up in. There's two sides to this, it seems to me. There's, as you say, this quite sort of almost Orwellian, sort of dystopian picture of a state which takes control of everybody's lives, which is inherently um, you know, distasteful to us as human beings. But more than that, it actually makes us worse human beings, it seems to me, because by, by allowing the state to take responsibility for personal choices like what we eat, what we think, what language we use, what we think is polite behaviour, uh, then the individual starts to lose responsibility and then therefore loses all respect, loses any chance to improve their life or, or, or worsen their life. They lose control and autom- autonomy. And, and that, I think, is the really, really uh, bad effect that comes from this. I think Peterson talks about that a fair bit. Well, he does. I mean, he says redemption will not happen at the level of political. It'll, happen at the, it'll be at the level of the individual. And I think that's a profound insight. Uh, maybe, uh, and, and you know, you're, you're a great intellect. You might have a different view on this. You might be able to put it more clearly. But it seems to me it becomes, in the end, a question of will our government in a democracy, a staggering thing, will, it, will we become a function of government or will government remain a function of the people? And, you know, the other thing that strikes me about it is that I want to see a society where the individual can flourish. We, of course we have to come together collectively around ideas, preferably, not identity. And this is this appalling idea that the Labor Party now has morphed. It was once a party that believed in universalism. It was quite noble. I might have disagreed with how they wanted to take it forward. Uh, and by the way, it's worth remembering, going back to what we were saying about Christianity, you know, it's said that the 1891 Parliament in Sydney elected, I think it was 32, two or 33 members of the putative Labor Party, and 21 of them uh, were from uh, evangelical Protestant backgrounds. And many of them had learnt their theories of social justice, which they were deeply committed to, and their ability to speak and argue and convince in their churches. Um, the, the ALP's origins are actually rather different, I think, to... Uh, and, and oh, in many ways more noble in terms of their objectives than the modern Labor Party. Because the Labor Party used to be about saying, right, well, the poor, the oppressed, the workers who are underpaid ought to be properly recognised on a universal basis as, as part of the Australian family. You can't argue with that. That's noble. Now it's about creating special classes who are new aristocrats, usually on some sort of identity politics basis. Now that's really disturbing stuff. It's an arist- aristocracy of victimhood, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really disturbing. And the problem with creating and supporting and nourishing and sustaining victims, genuine victims, of course we should try and help. But if you like to put them into a position where you play to their worst instincts, we all have bad instincts, every one of us. That's the first thing to understand. I'm not singling out victims. But if you're not really careful in the way that you try and work to help victims and you turn it into trying to give them a special status at the expense of others is that they then reach the point where 
and look, you see this happen. This is just being hard-nosed and realistic. It's not good for those people because they will say, as a victim, I demand you do X, Y, and Z. If you don't do it, you confirm their victimhood. If you do, they're not thankful because they were owed it. We should break this idea that we're owed so much. We should reinvigorate the idea that we owe. You're not doing anybody any favours, are you? I mean, all of us, at times, we struggle. We struggle to achieve what we want to achieve. And we're all inclined sometimes to blame outside forces. You know, I've got a vindictive boss or... um, it's because I've got a pommy accent, you know. Um, but as soon as you're allowed to do, you, you allow yourself to, to have that luxury of blaming something else, uh, you stop trying. You you're stop actually, trying. You diminish yeah. yourself. You exactly. diminish yourself. I actually really do believe that. And when I've seen these young people flocking to hear Jordan Peterson, he's saying, face up to it, you're not the person you know you ought to be. In fact, the more you look at yourself, the more you're likely to be despairing of your failings. But the answer is not to look for some empathy culture with yet another government program to come along and solve your problem. The answer is to go back to the bedroom, make your bed. In other words, sort your own self out, find your feet, and then go out and be as noble as you can be. That's a, a word we don't use anymore. We want people to strive to be as noble as they can be in their circumstances. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not about lording it over others. It's about being noble enough to make sacrifices and a contribution to your community and be a good neighbour uh, and accept your responsibilities to, to, to build that strong civic society that I believe you know, is at the heart of classical liberalism uh, that then, um, if you like, ensures that government has its place but no more than its place. I don't believe in big intrusive government. I really don't. This, this whole notion of equality of opportunity which... which we believe passionately in, Robert Menzies believed passionately in, uh, he re- believed as passionately in the equality of opportunity as the modern day quasi-socialists believe in equality of outcome. Um, but I don't think that means, equality of opportunity cannot mean that everybody starts from the same start line, because some people self-evidently got more advantage than others. I mean, you, you presumably had advantages in your time going to King's School and coming from a you know a landed aristocracy if you like of Australia uh, but you other people have probably had more advantages and, and similarly a lot of people had had less and fewer advantages so what does it mean equality of opportunities did it, did it because nobody starts at the same line is it how do we explain that I think it's a really important point well one of the, one of the aspects of it is motivation some people are materialistic, for example, and want to be wealthy. That's a good thing because they create, well, as long as they keep it in check uh, and don't monster other people on the way through, but that's good. They employ people, they create wealth that can be taxed, that can be deployed for people who are needy. What's wrong with that? It's a good thing, surely. That's how we got to where we are. But other people, uh, you know, I, I look at my own children. They don't think they'd mind me saying this. Uh, they're all pretty driven, but for, I think of one of my beloved kids, and she's just not especially motivated by being incredibly wealthy. It's not all that important. She has other priorities in her life. So they're different. I mean, terrific. Why the idea that we should all be grey and the same? But Menzies said something very profound about this. It's a very important distinction between equality of opportunity and of outcome. He said, democracy is not a machine, it's a spirit in which the Christian conception, uh, that is, that regardless of your station in life 
or your capabilities, every soul is of equal uh, worth in the eyes of heaven. Just unpack that for a moment before listeners sort of say, oh, that doesn't apply anymore. What it's really saying is that a higher authority says that we're all of equal value. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. He's saying that specifically. But the point to take out of it is it's the antidote to the idea that I can hate you because we disagree. It's, it's the theme that says you matter whether I disagree with you or not. And it doesn't allow for hatred simply because we disagree. Now, that's washed out of the system. So we've mocked, got out of the public square, and then this idea that we should respect one another as well. It's crippling the way we debate, and we're not getting good public policy because of it. Enforced equality of outcomes will drag everyone down. Why would we want to do to ourselves voluntarily what the Russians did when they were coerced into equality? It stripped the soul out of a nation and everyone lost. Why would we want to go there? Does it surprise you, as somebody who, who lived through the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, that there are now the, you know, these sort of old ideas of socialism which we thought are pretty much were done when the wall came down, now seem to be coming back in so many forms. Don't people have, why haven't people got it? That they, you know, lovely idea, but it simply doesn't work. They've neither lived through it nor been taught it. And I actually think this is an enormous area where our educational institutions have a very strong case. They, need, they should answer this case. Why have they not explained it? Why are the graduates of economics at the University of Sydney, for example, are 100% familiar with the fundamentals of what goes wrong when you try socialist experiments of the sort that Britain did in the 50s and 60s and which brought it humbly begging to the IMF in the 1970s for a bailout. And yet just a few short years later in the great scale of things, young Britons everywhere are flocking to the lunacy of Corbyn's policies. What's happened to the education system that they didn't learn those lessons and pass them on to their children and their grandchildren? This is a big question that I believe academia has to ask. And it, it moves into this, this sort of increasing short-termism, isn't it? As a short, short-termism is, is, is damaging the corporate world. You know, you've got chief executives just looking to the next quarter's results rather than sort of overall... Um, adding value to the company in the long term. And you've got the same in politics, it seems to me, short-term policy solutions. Let's get through the next election. Let's even get through the next week. Let's get through the next hour by coming up with some line that just see us through with none of that long-term thinking. Uh, and yet, I think demonstrably, the, the era when you entered politics, it was genuine long-term thinking. You can see it, you know, self-evidently in, say, the superannuation reforms that the Keating government introduced. We, we may have some issues about how it actually turned out and some of the problems with that system. But it's there. You know, people were thinking 25, 30 years hence, we're going to need people to be able to fund their retirements. How do we return to that kind of thinking? Maybe we need a bit of a, a shock after 20, 28 years of economic growth and, and we'll probably get it with the uh, irresponsible and ad hoc approach to climate change abatement that... Uh, that's likely to now descend into chaos, I think, uh, because nobody's had a proper debate. The Australian people are not able to make an informed decision. I'm very critical of where we've landed on this. 
Um, but superannuation is a good example, isn't it? Because you stop and think about it. Australia's had three incredibly good, uh, uh, I think, uh, periods of, of, of political leadership since the Second World War. Menzies saw the dangers of unfunded liabilities emerging in Europe and ageing populations, so he limited the pension here. It seemed tough and heartless, but actually it stopped us building those frightful intergenerational problems that the Europeans now face. Uh, Keating, uh, you know, the superannuation, a good uh, plan because our unfunded pension liabilities are a fraction of, say, England's, just a fraction. But you talk about short-termism, we haven't continued to upgrade the model and the guidelines properly since, which tells you something about our reluctance to engage in good policy debate. But then the third thing was we got rid of the debt. They've all been things that have placed Australia incredibly well for the future. We seem to have lost sight of that need to put down really strong, firm foundations. Tim Costello said a very interesting thing once at a dinner. I hope I'm not misquoting him and he won't mind. But he said something about our forebears to the effect that our forebears hope for a better life for their children and grandchildren. So they risked everything to come out here in sailing ships and to come to a land where they might or might not survive, let alone make it. But they took that risk in the hope of a better future for their kids and their grandkids. Our parents lived through the Great Depression and the war, hoping that they could secure something for tomorrow for themselves and their children. And we've re- I'm not going to blame the kids for this. We've reduced our children where, to the point where they hope for a good time tonight. So, you know, what's gone wrong? Again, my challenge to those who would say, I'm sounding like an old-fashioned, uh, they'll want to say reactionary. Actually, I think I'm a radical now. I'm not part of the major consensus anymore. But I say, where do you think we're going? Have we ever had a more distrustful, a more divided, a more atomized, frankly, a more anxious and even depressed society than we have now? Is, is, is this where you want to take us? This, this issue of trust, the breaking of trust, the loss of trust, you, you've, you keep coming back to this. Many of the interviews you do um, with, with great thinkers... You, know, you often come back to this point. It seems to be a central concern to yours. Can you explain it? I mean, I think freedom depends on trust. So once you've got two people meeting, trust becomes a central issue. If I trust you, we can work together cooperatively to achieve far more than we can in isolation. If I don't, not only cooperation goes out the door, but depending on how much I mistrust you and how dangerous I perceive you to be, I'll go for the rule book. I'll abandon freedom in the pursuit of security. Uh, and when it breaks down in a democracy, people look for more and more laws as though that's going to solve the problem. As Neil Ferguson points out, in fact, the more laws you impose, the more people think, right, well, I don't have to think about what's right and wrong. I'll just do whatever the law allows. And you end up with more and more and more regulation and freedom breaks down. A classic example is the recent banking inquiry. I was against it. I freely admit that. I thought, no, this would just be a witch hunt. Um, But I have to say now, well, it's a good thing we had it. It's a good thing we've got 78 recommendations now to fix the problems. Terrible thing that was needed in the first place. And don't think those 78 regulations, uh, with all of the policing and all of the name calling and all of the, you know, uh, arguing over whether people have met their obligations according to this rule or that regulation or whatever is going to help the banking sector, we've already got an exaggeration of the credit squeeze beginning to affect our lives, our business opportunities, people's chances to get into houses. So you see, when trust breaks down, we go for the rule book. 
We go for surveillance. We go for f- policing. And freedom is the price we pay, or loss of freedom. It's been a, a tumultuous 10 years or so in politics, of course, domestic politics here. Although, as I keep pointing out to people, it's, it's been like that throughout much of the developed world. And, and actually, we've had, in many ways, a more stable system here than in other Western democracies. Uh, to what extent is that the breakdown of trust between the citizens and their political representatives? And um, well, I've got a second question, but answer that one first. We'll move on to it. Oh, I think uh, a very significant one, uh, but it's also tied up with the loss of personal responsibility. Matthew Paris made this point at the time that it became obvious the GFC was really serious in Europe. And the Australian ran, I suppose it wasn't his headline, but they ran a strap line when they reprinted his story out of the Telegraph, I think, in England. Um, Face it, we're broke. But he was making the point, we don't want to face it. We don't want to face the fact that we're all in this together. We've overspent. We're going to impose a terrible burden on our children. We don't want to do austerity. Nonetheless, despite the fact we're responsible for this mess, we don't want to clean it up. And I think that's made it really, really hard for governments to lead. And people keep saying, where's our Churchill? Where's our Roosevelt? But see, we won't wear tough decisions anymore. Kissinger said that. We've lost the appetite to take the tough decisions needed to secure our future. So we really are focusing on the day-to-day. Peter Hitchens observed that maybe it's just got so horrendously difficult that people in the middle, good, decent, solid citizens, are just giving up and saying, it's too hard, I can't make sense of this. And in that environment, I think we do tend to become suspicious and wary and distrustful. Uh, and I fear for the impact that that will have on our freedoms. Why do you think that this has happened almost dramatically? It was almost an overnight change, it seems to me, which coincided in this country with uh, the end of the Howard era when you left politics. I'd like, cha- to, I'd like to say that was the cause of it, but I, <laughs> I don't think anybody believed it. Well, here's a thought, here's a thought John. So you... You and Mr Howard were the, the last uh, Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister of the pre-Facebook era. Yeah. You know, I think Facebook had a couple of million customers around the world. Now it's got you know, f- several billion. So that's what's, you know, the, the rise of social media. Again, uh, Neil Ferguson's written a book about this. It ought to be compulsory reading for everyone, I think, called The Square and the Tower. Uh, and it, it, it's Siena. If you haven't been there, you've probably seen postcards of it. Um, you, you've got a square, which of course is an oval, <laughs> and that's meant to represent the way we network in a community. And then you've got the tower that overshadows the clock tower, I think it is, uh, in that extraordinary Italian city. And the idea is that it represents government and the uh, instruments of a civil democratic society of our sort. And his argument is that social media has so complicated and so turbocharged the virtual public square uh, that it's in danger of overpowering the tower, the institutions of our society. And of course, it's a, a, you know, deeply revealing, isn't it, into our national psyche when you look at the way people talk to one another on social media. It's staggering stuff. It reflects, amongst other things, the extraordinary narcissism and hubris of the current age. I'm with C.S. Lewis. Pride lies at the heart of just about every human failing. Uh, and a 
good dose of humility. And as the old Irish have saying, well, John Stuart Mill, he put it very eloquently, I can't duplicate his words, but he said, you know, no matter how strongly you hold an opinion, if you haven't understood the opposing view, your opinion is pretty worthless. And as the Irish used to put it, don't judge a man till you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, that's washed out of the system. The idea that every one of us needs a little, or a good dose of humility because we're not perfect. And before we judge somebody else, we ought to remember that. You don't see that in the way people interact on the social media. The judgmentalism is frightening. Well, we no longer have... I mean, everybody's either a good person or a bad person, aren't they? A hero or a villain. Um, and yet, you know... As Johnson Haight, Johnson Haight points out in his 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 most recent book, because the world's not like that. We've all got bits of good and bad in us. Yeah, that's classical Christianity. It's one of the things that we've washed out. So now we don't have a framework for coping with good and evil, because I would argue that any decent framework for managing good and evil recognises that we're all a combination of both, and that's very confronting. We're blind. And even when it's pointed out to us, we're deeply reluctant to own our own failings. We're very quick to, you know, pull the log out of somebody else's eye, or the, the, you know, the, sorry, the, the speck out of somebody else's eye and leave the log in our own. And all, but all that's washed out of the culture. So now we say, as we raise our kids, you're the centre of your universe, uh, and uh, don't you let anybody sort of uh, undermine the view that it's all about you. Well. The problem with it is that it's not exactly producing a harmonious society or resulting in greater human happiness. Now, I don't want to sound unduly pessimistic about this because I'm a great believer in the Australian people. I just think they're dismayed and ought to be dismayed by the way the public debate is now carried out. And look, you know, I, the left will say the right is just as bad. But in terms of the numbers, there's a lot more people now who identify as left than identify as right. And I'm afraid they have the greater responsibility to act with more restraint on social media. But this is a nightmare of an issue. How do you, how do you, how do you manage it? Because I don't want government deciding what can be censored. The only thing that would be worse than governments deciding what should and should not be allowable on social media, I mean, it's one thing to do it with print and with television and so forth, I suppose, but very different on social media. The one thing that would be worse would we allow the platform deliverers to decide what should be allowed and what shouldn't? Yeah, and I think we should always make the point on this issue that um, that there have been many uh, terrific advances in knowledge and debate because of the new media. I mean, it's not yeah. all bad, right? I mean, yeah. you've had the opportunity now um, to get quite a platform of your own to, to do some really... Uh, quite challenging and important interviews, which get wide audiences, which you wouldn't have had yeah. 10 years ago. No, that's right. It is an extraordinary thing. And even one of the interviews I did that hasn't been so widely watched, about 3,000 or whatever, you know, it's, that's about the level of circulation that a good quality book uh, on, on a lot of social issues would get in this country. So, yeah, that's right. It's an opportunity to be a publisher, and I would never have thought I would have been involved in this, and I thought I'd gone back to a quiet life in the bush. But, you know, the uh, well, I, I've done my best to, to sort of say, well, are there some opportunities for me to not so much put my voice out there but be a facilitator for, for, for bringing some more voices into the public square? 
maybe that's a visiting card I've got left over from my days as Deputy PM and I'm trying to use it wisely because, to be frank, I am damned afraid of where we're going and what sort of freedoms my children and grandchildren are going to have. John, it's been terrific talking to you and um, I can recommend, highly recommend your, your own broadcast, johnanderson.com. There's no AU on the end, I think. Dot net. Dot net. Johnanderson.net.au. Uh, two interviews with Jordan Peterson or three? Three. Three, yeah. yeah. More recently, your interview you did here in, in, in Sydney with Neil Ferguson. Um, it, it, they're getting huge audiences and for good reason. I think the the public gets to decide. So thank you very much for spending time with us. We look forward to talking to you again about these issues down the track on the water cooler. Great to be with you. And we're back in an age when the clash of ideas is coming to the fore. We've got to be engaged. And thank you for what you do. Thanks, John. If you enjoyed that production of the Water Cooler podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and don't forget to give it five stars on iTunes. And you can support the cost of production by donating to the Menzies Research Centre at menziesrc.org donations. That's menziesrc.org donations.